Luke chapter 10. As we're returning, look at the very end of the chapter, please, verses 38 and following. Here's God's word for us this morning. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and, anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Do you pray with me? Lord God, it's good to be here. It's good to sing your praise. and It's good to study your word. And I pray that this morning you will make this a time of great encouragement and conviction and strengthening, strengthening of our walk with you. We need you. And we would ask you, Father, to do a supernatural work that only you can do. Show us your glory and give us the ability to obey. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. All right. Since it's just us here, we can talk. And I, I just need a little confession time. I do. I need to tell you guys about a pet peeve of mine. And since all the other people are up at the mountain, right, you all won't tell, correct? <laughs> With me? Now, th this is a bit divisive, divisive if you want to be British. And I know, I know, I know it's dangerous to open a sermon with a controversial point, the kind of thing we, we may not all agree. Some of you, when I share with you my pet peeve, may vehemently disagree, especially if you happen to be my wife. I want to ask you guys to be gracious, but prepare yourselves, okay? Are, are you ready to hear my problem, my, my pet peeve? I find it obnoxious when a person finds it necessary to photograph a moment rather than enjoy it. There, it's off my chest. <sighs> I feel better. I don't know. How many of you are with me that it just bugs you when someone has to take a picture no matter what. How many of you get my point? How many of you are my point? You're the one that does it. I know y'all. Some of you people think that the best way to look at the beauty of God's creation is by looking at the back of your iPhone instead of through your own eyes. Is that you? Tell the truth. How many of you have experienced all of the children's greatest moments as if you were filming a documentary? How many of you are the kind of person, or maybe you're married to the kindest person, if you're sitting next to them, feel free to elbow them, or next to somebody who just rips the spontaneity out of a beautiful moment in life by saying, hold on, I've almost got it, just one more minute. You guys know what I'm talking about? No, not at all. <laughs> You, you've just told me a lot right there, right there. 
See, again, like I said, some of you get the point, some of you are the point, and some of you are never, ever going to let go of your amateur photography. I cannot get Mitzi to stop. It's, it's an addiction. It's a sickness, really. <laughs> she tells me that we need these photos for posterity. I doubt very, very seriously that posterity is going to take the time to look through the billion and one digital pictures that we will have of our children. Now, why does this bug me? Okay, it, it really doesn't bug me that much. Well, but here's what I think is true. I think you, you, you shudder bugs, you. I, I fear that sometimes we allow something good, the taking of a nice little picture, to distract us from something better, which is the actual event we're trying to memorialize in the photo. Does that make sense? Now why would I bring that up? Because in the passage of scripture that I read to you today from Luke chapter 10, there's one little event, and there's one lady, a very nice lady, who misses the best thing for something that's just okay. And God gave it to us here in Luke so that you and I would know that when it's all said and done, there's only one main priority. So I want you to be ready to respond to today's message by, message by asking God to help you. God, help us all know his top priority for you. What is best? What's, what's number one? What's the thing God says? Make sure you don't miss this. Because you've got to admit, don't you, that if such a thing exists as a high uber priority from God, you don't want to miss it, right? It is important. Now, before we dive in, here's the context of the story. Luke is a friend. He's a companion of the Apostle Paul, first-rate historian, physician. He's writing a book, a gospel, to a man he simply calls Theophilus, God-lover. And in everything that Luke writes, he tells us in chapter 1, he says he wants Theophilus to know the truth that he's already heard about Jesus. So this story, the, this is only in Luke's gospel, it's right here to help you and me know true things about Jesus. And the passage for today, it's part of Luke's gospel in a section where Jesus is on his way to the cross. We're probably about six months out, probably about six months out from the time when Jesus would go into Jerusalem and give up his life as a sacrifice for the sins of God's children. And, and Jesus is walking around and he's preaching the kingdom of God and he's teaching the disciples to follow him and he's doing some great miracles. But what we need to grasp is that what we read today is supposed to help you and me follow Jesus in the way that this was supposed to help the disciples know how to follow Jesus. Now here's what's also interesting. Just prior to this section, if we were walking through Luke, you would have seen a passage where Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. You guys know the Good Samaritan story, right? And, and that parable is a teaching of Jesus 
and it followed an interaction between Jesus and a Jewish man because the man came up to Jesus and remember he said, I want to know how to be part of the kingdom of God. I want to know how to be in the kingdom. Jesus said, you know, what are the great commandments? And the man had said, the greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then the Good Samaritan passage tells us about how to love your neighbor. Remember that? The whole Good Samaritan point was, as Jesus said it, you know, which one was this man's neighbor? How do I love my neighbor as myself? This passage today then goes to the first part of the two great commandments. How do you love God with everything you've got? Now, today's message is not like a typical sermon that I would preach. So, Caleb, sorry, man. Um, it's not a message with multiple points. Usually you guys know that I give you multiple point number one, two, three to write down. You're not going to get that today. But why would I do that? Why would I not give you multiple points today? I'm not sure that this passage has multiple points that we need to get. I think this passage is about one thing. I think it's, it's like the old management quote. If you guys remember being in offices years ago, there would be signs sometimes on the wall that would say, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. You ever heard that quote before? That's a good one. You can write that down right now. I don't even need another point. The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. This passage is about the one thing, the main thing, the most necessary thing to be present in the life of a Christian so we can love God. This is about not being distracted even by a good thing, but focusing yourself on the main thing, the one necessary thing. So let's dive in and let's let God tell us what that one necessary thing is. Look at verse 38 with me. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into their house, into her house. So we got the disciples traveling around with Jesus, traveling from village to village, preaching the kingdom of God to the people. These are the people that the disciples had witnessed to earlier in the chapter, and they come to a village, little town. And Luke doesn't even care enough to tell us what town it is. It's the village of Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem. But the location today is not the significant part, but what happens and the tension that we feel in the passage, that's what we're going to find to be important today. So, now, Jesus and his little entourage are invited to have dinner at the home of a woman named Martha. This is a kind act of Martha. So immediately I want you to think positively about this woman. When Jesus had sent out the 70 earlier, he said, I want you guys to receive the hospitality of those who would welcome you into their homes. And here, Martha opened up her home. And that's good and that's right. And that gives us a very positive impression of Martha. Then comes verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So Martha's got a sister. Martha's sister is Mary. And in this passage, there's no point where Mary even speaks. We get our impression of Mary in this passage based on her actions. And Luke says that Mary, what's the first thing we see that she does? What's that? She sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. There's something significant here that you and I might not think of from our cultural context, but it screams to us from the first century. Mary, what do we know about Mary so far? She's Martha's sister. 
And what does the verse call her? Just a sister named Mary, right? Which tells us that Mary is a woman. Again, I, I, well, I'm not trying to give you divine revelation right there. That, that's just pretty easy to pick out, right? <laughs> Mary, a woman, and again, the verb tense gives us this, sat herself down among the men to listen to Jesus' teaching. It, it, it's clear that she inserted herself. She, she's squeezing into the circle. I'm in here too. Scooch over. It was not at all common that day for any woman in that setting to be allowed to sit and listen in the same section as the men. So what do you think it tells you and me that Jesus let that happen? Jesus granted this Mary, this woman, this first century woman, a status that was above and beyond the status placed on women in the culture of that day. How many of you have ever heard people tell you that the Bible puts women down? You ever hear that? Okay. It's simply not true. Just not. Don't, don't let yourself ever believe that. And, and you know why we believe the Bible puts women down when people say it to us? is because they keep screaming it at us, they keep saying it to us, they keep talking about it, they keep pushing it at us, and we get so tired of, of battling it that we just say, okay, you're right, that was then, this is now. Don't do that. Don't ever give up the true intellectual ground when someone says the Bible puts women down. I remember having a lady uh, years ago in Illinois, get, she got furious with me because she said, well, in the Old Testament, women were just property. And I said, have you read the Old Testament? I would disagree with you on that until I couldn't breathe anymore. In, 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 in the books of the law, we've got these daughters, five daughters of a man who they, their, their dad died before they would get their land inheritance. They went to Moses and asked, hey, this doesn't seem right. We should have, we should have our father's part. Every culture that would, that would squash women would say, nope, too bad. Moses goes to the Lord. The Lord says, they've got a great point and gave them an inheritance. The, the divorce regulation in Deuteronomy 24, you guys remember the divorce regulation that everyone likes to argue about, about what it means that if there's something unclean found in the woman, what does the word uncleanness mean? Something, you know, interestingly, the whole point of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and that divorce regulation is shaped at protecting a woman, women from being abused and passed around from husband to husband. That is treating women in a higher, gentler, kinder, more respectful, more dignified way than any of the Old Testament cultures around them treated ladies. No other culture was giving women those kind of rights. In the New Testament, Luke's gospel focuses all over the place of the way that women play valuable roles in the ministry of Jesus. They're, they're there, they're faithful, they're supporting, they're helping. Jesus definitely, definitely elevated the status of women in his day. He did not demean women in his day. But now what he didn't do, and this is what our modern folks get mad about, Jesus did not, did not do away 
with distinctions and roles related to gender. Jesus did not pretend that gender did not exist. Jesus did not pretend that there's no difference in being male or being female. And Jesus did not pretend in any way that, that somehow all the roles that God had given, the way that God had shaped the family to work, should somehow be changed. He did not do away with biblical roles. You know why? Because Jesus would not go against the design of God. Jesus would not actually do us, humanity, the harm of pretending that gender and gender roles don't exist. He wouldn't do that. But Jesus certainly did make it clear, even in this moment, that a woman is a person created by God in God's image for God's glory. And any woman created in God's image and for God's glory is as valuable as any man who's created in God's image and in God's glory. And we see Jesus valuing Mary just by letting her sit in and listen to the teaching when other teachers of that day really may not have done so. Again, here's what you need to grasp there in that little side tangent that I just took with you is Jesus treasured these women and elevated their status, but he did not do away with the concept of gender or the God-given, God-designed, God-ordained roles for our functioning for for God's glory and for our good. Make sense? All right. So far, so good, right? Martha welcomes Jesus in. That's good. Mary squeezes into the circle and Jesus lets her just sit there and learn. And that's good. Now, verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Martha was distracted. And the verb here in the original says that she was pulled away. She was, in a sense, dragged away from listening to Jesus because she, was, she had things that she believed she had to do in order to serve best. Maybe it was the cooking, right? Maybe it was the cleanup. I don't know. I don't know what she was after. But Martha was so busy making the event perfect that she was dragged away from Jesus. By the way, this happens to us, doesn't it? Serving isn't bad, not bad at all. But sometimes Christians get so overwhelmed with the stuff we want to do, the things we want to accomplish, that we are dragged away from just loving Jesus. What details in your life? Think about your own life. What details in your life take you away from Jesus. What things do you do? And by the way, don't eliminate from this list things that you think you do for God. What things do you do, even for God, that keep you from sitting at the feet of the Savior and hearing His words? Think about that, because that's going to be important to how you respond to the voice of God in this text. Now, Martha wasn't just distracted, though. She was mad. She was frustrated that her sister sat down and listened to Jesus with the boys while Martha's in the kitchen doing all the work. By the way, does that not feel like a legitimate gripe? Be honest, doesn't that feel a little, yeah. Right? So Martha comes to Jesus and she lets him have it. Don't you care? She asks. 
stop. Imagine that. Let your mind go. Martha just walked up to the God who made her, who was on his way to the cross to pay for her sin. And she asks him, don't you care? Now, Martha's asking if Jesus isn't bothered by the fact that she's got to do all the work while Mary sits on her behind and enjoys the sermon. Now, again, one positive point for Martha before we're hard on her. She is believing in Jesus. What does she call him? Lord. That's a big deal. She knows Jesus is not just an ordinary teacher. She seems to have the identity of Jesus correct here. But Martha's grasp of Jesus as Lord does not prevent her from letting Jesus know what, in her opinion, he needs to do to fix this situation. She tells Jesus, you need to straighten Mary out. You need to let her know to get up, get in the kitchen, and help your big sister. So here's the question. How often do you and I talk like this to Jesus in our hearts? When something doesn't go the way you want it to, do you, do I, do we have the audacity to ask Jesus, don't you care? I wonder how often in our prayer life we come to God with a big list of advice that he needs so he knows what he needs to do about something that you and I see as a wrong. How much of your prayer time, by the way, is spent with you advising God on how to run the universe? Just a question. Nothing wrong with asking for help, but think it through. But before we judge Martha harshly, let's remember that her weakness there is often our own. Then verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And here's the resolution of the tension. Here's the teaching of Jesus. First, Jesus is compassionate toward Martha. He really is. There's, there's no hint of him being mad at her. There's, I, I can just picture a loving tone. It reminds me of, of Jesus looking at the city and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Right? Martha is missing Jesus, and it's sad. And Jesus points out Martha is distracted. She's worried. She's anxious about a lot of stuff. By the way, what does Jesus always tell us about being anxious and being worriers? You guys know what Jesus says about worry? Don't do it, right? Yeah, and it's that video. Stop it. Just stop. <laughs> worrying, worrying dishonors God, doesn't it? When you let yourself worry, are you not saying, God, I just don't believe you've got the future right? Jesus says we're supposed to rest in him. We're supposed to trust his provision. We're supposed to let... God handled tomorrow. If God feeds the birds, if God puts clothes on the flowers, he's going to take care of us. 
Then look at verse 42 again. Jesus says, one thing is necessary. That is a huge phrase. Maybe it ties to the big banquet Martha's trying to provide. Maybe, maybe she's frustrated, right? I can't get the next course of the meal out to the guests because there's so much to do. But one thing is necessary. I mean, maybe in a sense Jesus could be telling her, you know, you could have just made something in the crock pot. It would have been fine. <laughs> get, get your instant pot out. One course meal. Here we go. Let's just hang together. They didn't need a feast. They would have been fine eating off of paper plates. That would have been okay. Nobody needed to knit him a cookie. It was fine. They, they didn't need the fine china. But we can see clearly that there's something more in what Jesus is saying to Martha than calm down and settle for the simple meal. One thing is necessary, and Mary chose it. Mary chose the best thing. She's not distracted by a bunch of good things. Mary has chosen what she really needs. And Jesus says, there's no way I'm taking that from Mary. No way. And the thrust of the passage in context is to show you and me somebody loving God with their whole heart, soul, and mind, right? And notice who is loving Jesus with all their heart. It's not the busy girl giving her all. It's not the lady who's all stressed out about balancing activity after activity, event after event, ministry after ministry, who's pleasing Jesus. No, the person pleasing Jesus is the one who's willing to let a few things go in order to sit down at Jesus' feet and hear Jesus' teaching. That's the one loving Jesus the way she should. I think we can see it, can't we? The one necessary thing comes to us in two halves. Two halves. So Kelly, if you really want points, you can write these down, okay? Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Mary is, in that sense, placing herself at in a lower position than Jesus in response to his great worth, great value. You know what we call it when you put yourself in a low position before God as your divine superior? We call it worship. Whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the words that translate worship in English carry with them the idea of someone lowering themselves, bowing down before someone greater. Think of worship as yourself bowing down before a king. The true definition of worship always has to do with you doing something, taking an act action that shows that God is greater and that you are lesser, that God is big, that you're small, that God's the king, that you're the subject, that God's the master, that you're the bond slave. When you obey God in any area of life out of respect for God's authority in response to his revealed will, you worship. We covered that in 1 Peter a few weeks ago. Specifically here, though, Mary takes part in lowering herself before Jesus. Why? So she could hear him and respond to him. I think that's also there, worshiping and then hearing his word. There's another half. By the way, Mary did this with others. She took part right there in a form of corporate worship. Now, I know it was informal. I mean, she was at a dinner party at her sister's house. Maybe her house, too. I don't know how that worked out. But the Lord Jesus was there. 
The God we worship was there. The word of God was pouring over the group. And what does Mary do? She assumes the position of a servant. She lowers herself and she listens. And she worshiped in that setting. Mary listened to the words of Jesus. The Lord Jesus was teaching. Mary put herself in a position to hear and understand the word of Jesus, which is the word of God, isn't it? Jesus said that what she did there was the best thing. See, part of the life of anybody who worships truly, who follows Jesus truly, part of their life is to make it your high priority to sit at his feet and hear and understand his word. So how do we do the one thing that's necessary? How do we keep the main thing the main thing? How do we love Jesus rightly and not be dragged off by other things? We need to put ourselves in a position to worship Jesus and hear his word. We need to sit at his feet and listen. Now an obvious question arises, doesn't it? Jesus isn't physically here with us. How could we sit at his feet and listen to his word? I think you know, don't you? Jesus' word is God's word. What's God's word? Anybody that's young know? What's God's word? None of my children know. Owen's asleep. The Bible, right? He's like, leave me alone. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I could read you tons of other verses from scripture to communicate that same truth, but the Holy Scripture is the word of God, the word of Jesus. So if you want to sit at Jesus' feet, if you want to listen to Jesus' teaching, you have to put yourself in a position to hear and understand the Bible, the Word of God, the Scripture. That's the one thing that's necessary. How do you do it, you ask? Guess what? This is the spot where I do remind you that this requires effort and discipline on your part. Discipline yourself. Learn the Bible. See to it that you learn the Bible. Now, how might we do that? You might do it through, again, you've got to study the Bible, don't you? Can you imagine a Christian life where you say, I don't think I'm going to study what God says. I'm just going to sit still. That's not a good one. You could do it by personal study, and you most certainly should. You can read good books written by Bible teachers about the Bible. You can listen to good Bible teachers. They're out there. Watch out for the bad ones. If you don't know which is which, come talk to me. I'll try to help. You certainly, certainly should do this by making Sunday morning worship a priority in your life. I mean, guys, the whole reason we're here this morning is to worship Jesus and open his word so we can learn from him and respond to him in obedience. We are here to glorify Jesus by hearing and obeying his word. And we obey him how? Well, we, we sing his praise, we give, we pray, we listen to the scripture read, we listen to the word preached. That's what we do together. Let me ask you this, just, just for grins and giggles. How easy is it for you to allow yourself to be pulled away, to be distracted from Sunday morning worship? 
And by the way, that will totally depend on how your family has worked. Because for some folks, it feels really, really, really just rottenly weird not to be at church on a Sunday morning. But for some folks, it actually is kind of easy to take a couple of weeks off of worshiping together with the people of God. How many excuses do you have? Maybe your excuses, by the way, are good things. Martha had good things to do. But Mary did the best thing. She made sure she put herself in a place to hear the word of Jesus and to glorify him in her life. My goal there is not to beat us up about this truth, but, but friends, Jesus tells us how to love him with all our hearts. And we want to love him with all our hearts. And part of loving Jesus with all of your heart, the top part of loving him with all of your heart, is to make sure that you find yourself sitting at his feet and hearing his word taught. This is not about legalism. I'm not saying, you know, if you miss one Sunday, you've got 17 demerits that you've got to work your way out of. Although I'm thinking about it for those folks up at the mountain. But, but God commands us, don't give up. Right? God says, don't give up meeting together, as, as many of you are already in the habit of doing, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. I'm not trying to beat you on that, but listen, this is the gracious call of the Savior on your life to come to Him, to love Him, and to receive the best from Him. In reality, this passage shows us something of the gospel we never become the children of God by doing good deeds. We become the children of God by trusting Jesus and yielding our lives to Him. And it results in obedient actions. We're going to obey God out of love, but the good news, the wonderful news, is that a life that is marked by the gospel is a life that's marked by a desire simply to know and be near Jesus. We want to worship Jesus. We want to hear his word. We don't have to fill our lives up with activities to earn his favor or to make ourselves valuable. What we need to do is love Jesus deeply and let that love lead us to the obedience that would please him. So I'll put two calls before us this morning. One is for the Christians in the room. One's for those who don't yet know Jesus. Christians, here's your call. Love Jesus. How? Sit at his feet and hear and obey his word. Worship Jesus in your life. Don't let things get in the way from you taking a moment to lower yourself before Jesus to be in his presence. If you have too many activities in your life to let this happen, then you've got to be disciplined enough to shut some of them down. Focus on the best. I want you to see grace here, though, friends. You cannot work your way into God's favor by doing more and more stuff. Isn't that good news, by the way, that you don't have to do a bunch of good to impress God? That God actually says to you, it's okay to let a couple good things go so you can do best? Aren't you glad about that? Can you imagine if you had to be the absolutely perfect goody-goody in every category of your life? How many of you would pull it off? I'm not hearing any takers. You don't have to wear that burden. Love Jesus. Don't think you have to make him love you back. You couldn't do a single thing to make Jesus love you more. How do I know that? 
because he's already proven the totality of his love for his children by sacrificing himself to pay for our sins. So make worshiping that Savior who already loves you, make worshiping him and hearing from him in his word your top priority because how much joy you receive from knowing that Savior. Now, I'm not at all saying here, so therefore be lazy. Don't work or anything. I'm not telling you to make excuses for not serving by, Pastor said I just have to love Jesus, so I'm not doing nothing. I'm not calling you to live a contemplative, monastic lifestyle. Well, I'm just going to sit back and meditate and do nothing to help the church. I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So I'm asking you to prayerfully examine your life and see what it is you would have to do to do this and to do it better. And the second call I would make here is for those of you who don't know where you stand before Jesus. Because Martha shows us you can get busy running around near Jesus and you can miss Jesus. You could be coming to church every Sunday and you could not personally know Jesus. I don't want you to miss Jesus. So let me tell you the story one more time so you have a chance to respond to him. And if you say to yourself, he tells us this every week. Yes, he does. It's on purpose. Listen to me. Jesus is God who came to earth. He lived a perfect, flawless, never-failing life. And Jesus met the standard of absolute perfection that you and I have never met. Jesus did all the good things that God requires. He obeyed the law perfectly in our stead, even though we never have. See, you and I have sinned against God. You and I have never been perfect in front of God. And because we have failed to be perfect before God, we are cut off from God because of our sin. But Jesus also allowed himself willingly to go to the cross and to die as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus didn't even stay dead, but he rose from the grave on the third day. And that resurrection proves to us that Jesus fully defeated sin and fully defeated death. And now Jesus offers you and me forgiveness. He says, I will forgive you. I will give you my perfection before God. So if you wouldn't miss Jesus, if you're going to not miss Jesus, how do you do it? You've got to come to Jesus. You've got to admit that you're a sinner in front of God. You've got to acknowledge that you can't do even one good thing that would get you into heaven. You don't have that much good in you. I don't have that much good in me. Instead, what do we do? We believe in Jesus and we ask him to save us. Let go of thinking you get to be the boss of your life and tell God, I surrender to you. I submit to you as my king and my master. And if you'll submit yourself to God, and if you'll believe in Jesus as your only hope, what you're going to find out is that God will have forgiven you of your sins, and God has made you into his child. Friends, don't miss Jesus. Come to Jesus Cry out to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Turn from your sins and turn toward Jesus and learn to love Jesus with everything you've got. If you need to know how to do that, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to help you with that. You, you know, I tease my wife that she misses a lot 
when she tries to get every event captured on camera instead of living it. You can imagine that, right? I think that's a little sad. But I'll tell you this, there's nothing sadder than missing Jesus. Don't let yourself be kept from Jesus through anything. Don't let your service, don't let your religion, don't let your activity, anything, even a good thing, keep you from Jesus. Make it a priority in your life to come to Jesus, to hear his words, to sit at his feet, to adore him. So let's pray together and let's ask God to help us to have the one thing that is truly, truly necessary. Lord God, we bow before you and we ask you for grace, for mercy. We ask you for the ability, Lord, to not miss the main thing. We want to get this right and we won't do it naturally. The truth is, I think all of our lives, in one place or another, God, have things in them that would get in our way of loving you like we should. What we want to do, Lord, is to not let that happen. So I pray for the, the long-time, long-standing, established Christians in the room. Would you give us two things. Give us love and grace so that we are confident in you. Give us comfort. Let us see the beautiful, sweet comfort that is present when Jesus says, I'm not going to take the best thing from her because she's not doing a bunch of little good things. Give us comfort. But also, Lord, give us discipline so that we will love you with all our heart. Help us see what to take out of our lives so we can bow to you more. And I pray for those who don't know you, God, that they would come to you, that you would save souls this day. God, be magnified. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.